Welcome to Cool Hackers, my name is Stephen Mather and this is the last of the current season in our mini-series on the psychology of cults. For this week's final episode of the season we're releasing a recording of a presentation that I gave to the International Cultic Studies Association in 2022 which summarised my master's dissertation research. Now, if you're listening to this on your normal podcast app, we have also released this as a video on our Evil Sheep YouTube channel, which will allow you to see the slides for the presentation. And the link is in the show notes below. Don't forget to subscribe and follow the channel. And if you like the podcast, you can help support it by becoming a patron. Okay, so here's the episode. Thank you for listening. Hello, my name is Stephen Mather, and it's a real privilege to be able to present my research findings with you today. The title of my presentation is the title of my dissertation. It's called University Changed Everything, Making Sense of Self Through Education and Career After Leaving Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm going to give you a little brief uh, bit of my background. I was born a third generation Jehovah's Witness. And uh, Jehovah's Witnesses teach that it's necessary to dedicate one's life to uh, Jehovah's kingdom and to preaching and teaching before Armageddon comes to destroy the old world. So the emphasis really is on preaching and teaching, Bible studies, going to meetings and so on. And you're really encouraged to sacrifice worldly pursuits like a career or any sort of aspirations you might have. So despite some doubts, I was baptised in 1983. I served as a ministerial servant and a pioneer, which is a full-time minister. But in 1997, with the birth of my daughter, I really started to struggle with these doubts I'd had for a long time, and I started to fade. When I left, I really concentrated on my career, and I ended up uh, finding a role in corporate training, which is essentially what I do still. In 2017, I completed a degree in psychology, and then in 2020, I completed my master's in organisational psychology, uh, the dissertation of which is the basis of this presentation. So here's um, a basic outline of what I'm going to talk to you about today. First of all, I'm just going to briefly talk about the questions that interest me and the specific research questions I used for this dissertation. I'm then going to talk briefly about the method. I'm going to present to you some of the results from this research, and then we'll talk about what they mean and what they might mean, what they point to, and what other questions we might want to ask following this research. And so my two research questions I started with are, how does someone raised as a Jehovah's Witness think about embarking upon a career after leaving the group? And secondly, how does education and career affect beliefs about identity for a former Jehovah's Witness? So this research is focusing on the role that career and education have in the process of leaving and in making sense of life afterwards. The method I use is called interpretative phenomenological analysis which of course is a mouthful, therefore most people just call it IPA, like the beer. 
IPA is a very specific way of doing research. Firstly, it's ideographic, which means that it has this commitment to the specific experience of people. And it's very detailed, really trying to understand what the individual's phenomenology is. And it locates this phenomena in the particular, in the particular experiences of the people that I've interviewed. It's cautious about generalizing, but it is actually possible to start to identify some possible phenomena and some possible causes, some possible links to other experiences in the analysis of this work. So that's one of the things that really interested me. It's more than simply phenomenology. There is this interpretative and analytical aspect to it. Because of its qualitative nature, uh, we use small numbers of participants. For my research, I just have three. It's really interested in the sense-making process of those individuals. Another element of IPA is it seeks to interpret the experience through the lens of psychological theory. So as I said before, it's not simply phenomenology, as important as that is. It's also saying, what does this experience tell us? And what are the things we already maybe know about psychological processes that might fit into these experiences? The other thing that I really wanted to uh, talk about, which is very important to me, was this idea in IPA of the double hermeneutic. So the double hermeneutic is this understanding that the researcher is also engaged in a sense-making process. So whilst there is an element of bracketing, trying to make sure that the it's the, the participant's experience that's coming out of that, when interpreting what data you've got and how that might relate to psychological research, the researcher themselves has something to do with that and has to interpret that in some way. Therefore, it's important to bring this out into the open. So this meant that I, as a former Jehovah's Witness, could accept that I, I'm going to be coming at this from a particular perspective and just be open and honest about that and include that perspective in the research. So I use three participants, Fiona, Ben and Julie. Of course, these are pseudonyms. They are all ex-Jehovah's Witnesses having left over 10 years ago. I interviewed them remotely, recorded, transcribed, and then I started to identify themes, of course, making sure that all of this was done according to strict rules of ethics. There were four or five, depending on the person, superordinate themes that emerged for each participant. And I was managed to identify two common themes that sort of appeared in all of them. Use of career and education in the struggle for a coherent sense of self in the face of feelings of profound identity change. And secondly, finding a new community through career and education as part of the process of transition. And I've simplified them for the purpose of this presentation. And I've called them struggle for a coherent identity and finding a new community through career and education. So obviously this is a very simplified diagram, but it's really just trying to make the point that for 
born in members, people who leave after being born in, raised in these groups. There are essentially two cells or there are two sets of identity. One while you're in the group, one while you're after leaving the group. Life as a member, life as an ex-member. Unlike recruited members, SGAs, MJs may have no readily available way to talk about or make sense of who they are without the group. So how these individuals construct a sense of self and how they make sense of who they used to be versus who they see themselves now is an area of intense interest to me, and I think really important. So for the presentation of the results, I'm going to share with you a selection of the data in the form of quotations. After that, I'm going to draw upon psychological theory to suggest some possible explanations for what's happening and how we might take it forward. So this is the first section that I'm going to look at the results, and I'm focusing on this struggle for a coherent identity. When I asked Ben, whether he perceives himself as the same person now as he was when he was a witness, he says, different, completely different. I look back to that guy and I wouldn't say I'm embarrassed because it's kind of made me what I am today. I think it imprints a lot of good qualities on you, doesn't it? So I found this really interesting. On the one hand, Ben was very clear that he's a different person. He didn't hesitate when I asked him that question. Different, completely different. But then he goes on to explain that it imprinted a lot of good qualities on him, making him what he is today. So I found that to be somewhat paradoxical, somewhat contradictory. So apparent contradictions actually illuminate a lot of Ben's work that he's doing as he's trying to make sense of these experiences. And indeed it applies to other members too, other participants. So a lot of what he's doing is he's reconciling who he was, who he is, and how he feels about these identities. So here's an example. There was always two Bens. That's cognitive dissonance, isn't it? There was always the guy in the back of my head or sat on my shoulder going, this is bullshit. And you know it is because of X, Y, Z, don't you? And then there was always the Ben who was good at giving talks and popular and friendly, going on quick builds with his mates. I'll talk about what quick builds are in a moment. But again, we see that Ben is aware of this difficulty, these two Bens. There's this Ben that's, that's actually doubting what he's being told, that doesn't really believe it. And then there's the Ben that actually enjoys the life. So I call this the battle of the Bens. One doesn't believe it. The other one enjoys the life. So there's another little section that I'm going to share with you that again demonstrates a contrast. And he notices this contrast. And what is really interesting then is how he resolves that. So let's start with how he recognises that contrast. Well, you can't do that as a Jehovah's Witness, can you? You can't go into a nightclub, a club and swear and tell people rude jokes. But there was this competition on in London 
So I went down and did it. And then, then did stand-up comedy for the next 10 years. So we can see there a contrast. Um, Ben's talking about what he couldn't do as a Jehovah's Witness. You know, he, he could never go into a nightclub and tell people rude jokes. But then when he stopped being a witness, he could do that. And he became a stand-up comic for the next 10 years. So Ben here is identifying um, a big difference between the old Ben and the new Ben. The old Ben couldn't do this. The new Ben did. Did it for 10 years. But then what's interesting is how Ben reconciles this and starts to identify a, a self, a single self that he can thread through the whole thing. In fact, my talks, my public talks and items on the meetings, people always said, oh, we love it when you're on there. And it was all about wanting to entertain, really. It's bad, isn't it? OK, so, yeah, I always wanted to entertain. So this isn't the only section that Ben talks about this. Ben talks uh, in quite quite a lot of detail about how when he was an elder, he used to love doing public talks. So public talks are the generally the talk that's given on a Sunday that you are supposed to invite your interested people to and they'll come along and listen to this talk. And Ben used to love doing those talks and other items on other meetings where he'd like to like make people laugh and tell jokes. And he's identifying this entertainer, this Ben as entertainer, both as the elder and then later. So actually, he is the same person. He's just expressing that in a different way. So although he identifies this schism between or this contrast between you can't you can't do this as a Jehovah's Witness. But then when I left, I did. He's now drawing the two threads together and saying, actually, I was always the same person. I was always this entertainer. So he appears to be reconciling the incongruence and apparent paradox and identifying a core part of his sense of self, this person who liked to entertain. So he's making sense of his past and his current life from JW Elder to stand-up comedian. And he's establishing a thread of continuity between these old and new identities. So I'm now going to have a look at our second participant, which is Julie. She says, I mean, I'm not as angry as I used to be, you know, because I feel like I'm doing something now about it with the Open University degree. But um, it was a life of subservience in a sort of misogynistic kind of cult. You know, that was my life. It was mapped out. You sort of get married, you leave home to get married, and then you are the wife. So Julie is demonstrating that she felt angry, and she's angry about lost opportunities. Education crops up there. And she also talks about a life of subservience, which is mapped out. And then her final sentence in this little clip and then you are the wife is really a commentary on this limited identity options that she had when julie's talking about her experience she then talks about what seems like a revelation to her she she recounts 
a revelation about her identity and agency. Yeah, so I think I just felt that I became an individual, not, you know, how there's like a pat mentality when you're in the witnesses, isn't it? Um, I felt actually I'm an individual and I can think for myself. I don't need to defer to somebody else. I can make my own decisions and, you know, take responsibility. So partly education and partly from the work that she does, which I'll talk about in a moment, she's now using that to enable her to identify that actually she can make decisions for herself. She is an individual. She doesn't need to defer to someone else. I find this really striking, this description of being an individual. There's a real sense of emancipation from being subsumed as a part of a collective. So Julie goes on to talk about another contrast. And as a woman, your role is to support. But I've always kind of supported. I always supported my husband's accountancy practice, doing, you know, sort of helping with the secretarial aspects, that kind of thing. And then I actually became a home educator. So I homeschooled our son until he was 14. So again, we see this acknowledgement that her role was to support. And that's very much in line with what Jehovah's Witnesses say about the role of women in their organization. But that also extended to her career. So even though it was outside of the religious setting, she was still supporting. She was supporting her husband's accountancy practice. And again, that's not uncommon within Jehovah's Witnesses. But then she has this opportunity to become a home educator. She goes from support to educator. And notice the phrasing. She says, I actually became a home educator. So she could have said, I started to home educate my son. But no, she, she took that identity upon herself. I became a home educator. And she's using that as a way to create a new way of thinking about herself. She goes on to explain this. In a way, that was, it wasn't a career, but it, it was, you know. I was finding that I actually, I could actually, I was doing something for me. Learning new skills, you know. And then obviously when the children were at school, I felt I was ready to be me. I wasn't a mother. I wasn't a wife. I was me in my career. So as always in qualitative work, when you're transcribing people's words, they're not always in beautifully framed sentences. And you can see in the early part of that sentence, Julie's struggling to sort of get her thinking together. But it sounds like she's she's using this idea of being an, a home educator as a kind of bridge between this support Julie and what's going to be just me in my career um, and this was a great way of um, of her to do that through this being a home educator she actively uses this identity of home educator to find her own identity of me in my career and the third participant is Fiona and obviously I've taken one of the sentences that she says as the 
part of the theme of my dissertation, going to university changed everything. She talks about this in glowing terms. Um, I think it gives you a bit of identification of who you are. You find, uh, you find some, you find yourself, don't you? I think going to uni made me find out what I love doing and wanted to do. So for her, she's very clear that it was education again that helped her find herself. But notice she's talking about finding herself. It's giving her a bit of identification. But it's also finding out what she loves, what she's wanted to do. Again, there's a bit of a tension here between continuity and change. In using the idea of finding herself, she's suggesting that there was always the authentic Fiona to find, albeit hidden or suppressed. And through education, her authentic self became revealed. She talks again about um, this difference. So again, we're looking at contrast. So as we can see through all these discussions, through all these interviews, there's a real sense of contrast between what I was like before and what I am like now. The person I was, the person I am. When I graduated my degree, that was just like, oh my goodness, what a different person I am from a couple of years ago. Um, so many things changed in that two years. It was just wonderful. A lot of these statements are, are incredibly touching to me. Um, the way that my participants talked about their experience is truly heartwarming. And this is one of those, those wonderful statements. Um, what a different person I am from a couple of years ago. So again, she's very explicitly stating that she is very different. So she has a strong sense of personality change. But that's a bit of a different narrative from the one of the authentic self. She's describing here a wonderful transformation from one thing to another thing, from one person to another person. Whereas earlier, she said she found herself, her true self. Again, she says something similar here. Yeah, I think I'm two different people. I don't think anybody from my old school days would recognize who I am now. So a possible way to reconcile these differences, we've seen how um, Ben did it by creating this thread that went through the whole of his life as entertainer. We saw how um, Julie did it by having a bridge with this becoming a home educator and that helped her go from support to just me and my career. For Fiona, she seems to be having two separate stories for different occasions. So sometimes education helps her make sense of a fundamental change in how others perceive her. She talks quite a lot about how other people would talk about her, how other people would see her. But then at other times, when she's talking more about her internal world, she sees her work in education as her discovering her true self. So for her, 
She's actually becoming what she always was. The second theme was about finding a new community through career and education. Ben talked about quit builds here. So quit builds are um, used to be done in the organization in Jehovah's Witnesses where you'd go onto a, you'd have lots of uh, witnesses from all over the country who are different trades and they'd all descend upon a concrete slab. Essentially that would all be done first and they'd build the kingdom hall over three days, two or three days. And then the first meeting would be held on the Sunday afternoon. So the whole thing would be done within a few days. Ben was part of this team. The very first quit build I was on in the UK. And then that's camaraderie, isn't it? What a fantastic experience they were. So I got into that, got into a team, traveling all over the country. All my weekends became about going away with other Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, all tradesmen mucking in, all working together, eating sandwiches, cake, drinking beer at night. That was a really good life. It wasn't very religious. So Ben here talks about this feeling of camaraderie and, and this great life he had going around the country building these halls. Notice the importance of camaraderie. When you leave a group like Jehovah's Witnesses, there's normally a, a huge break with that community and all the sub-communities within it. Um, so that's often a really difficult experience. But he talks about a different type of camaraderie next. And then there's a camaraderie amongst the comedians backstage, like gladiators about to go out. It's your turn now, mate. Or when you come back. Oh, well done. Don't worry. The audience are like that. They don't laugh at anything. They're just like that around here. I did see someone smiling at the back. It's really brutal or amazing, one or the other. So Ben talks about this experience of being a stand-up comedian, but notice the feeling of camaraderie seems to be really important to him again. So there's an obvious place he's been able to find where he can get this camaraderie. Fiona is very clear about the problem. There is a lot of peer pressure. My whole community was the witnesses. You are actively encouraged not to have anybody outside the witnesses. So if I was going to walk away from that, I was walking away, not just from a religion or a way of life, but my whole community, my whole support system. And that was terrifying. It was terrifying because I did not believe I was able to do it. So Fiona is very explicit about the importance of finding another community for her. So it was a combination of the workplace providing a new support mechanism and a new community that I could turn to. And then by going to university, that was another community. And so I had another community that I could turn to and enabled me to walk away from the other community. It was okay to walk away from the community. She, she uses the word community about five or six times here. And it's clear that that was really important to her, but she identifies two new communities, one at work and another at university. So career and education were key elements for Fiona 
to move from one community to another, as it was for Ben with his community in his Jehovah's Witnesses community and then the one as a stand-up comic. So I'm now going to think about some of these data and identify where some of the research, psychological research and what we already know about the psychology of self uh, might have a part to play in this. Participants struggled with a complex, sometimes apparently contradictory narrative. This narrative incorporated both the idea of being a completely different person from the one who'd been a witness, whilst at the same time finding themselves or at least having a, a thread of their selfhood that they were able to express more fully. And they actually used higher education and career as a way to make sense of their identity. The stand-up comedian was always an entertainer. Yes, he was an elder, but he'd always wanted to entertain. So his career as stand-up comic provided him the way of making sense of that. For Julie, her career of being a home educator was like a stepping stone to her more academic career. Similarly for Fiona, going to university allowed her to become the person that she actually was, although other people would see that as very different. So they were able to draw on a sense of their true selves to create a new or at least a more complete identity, drawing upon qualities they already possessed, which allowed them to create this sense of continuity. So how does this link to theory and research? Well, actually, there's quite a, a lot of areas that I've referred to in the dissertation, but I've just got three here I want to briefly talk about. Um, they're actually from two different papers. Firstly, from Haney and Shepard, and that's around telling a story involving past, present and future. And the second area is this area of moratorium. And the third is this area of bricolage. In 2011, Haney and Shepard published a paper about Marines who were forced into early retirement through injury. Obviously, that was a real knock on their identity. Being a Marine was a really important salient element of their identity. What they noticed, though, was there seemed to be a difference between those who adapted successfully and those who had difficulties adjusting. One of the elements was this idea that those who were more successful, however that is defined, were metaphorically speaking, um, able to carry on talking about themselves. The book had not been closed on their lives. So there was a, a consistent narrative that they could tell about themselves they could refer to things that had happened to them and what that taught them and how they'd used that in their life after leaving the marines it hadn't completely finished you know, part of their life wasn't completely over sure they were no longer actually serving as marines but they still were the same person with their experiences with their learnings that came from that 
they were able to tell a continuous story about their selfhood and incorporate various coherent elements of themselves then and now. And in my research, I think I found something similar. For all of my participants, they were successfully able to negotiate these difficult periods of transition by finding a way, particularly Ben, finding a way to create this consistent narrative of who he has always been and who he became after he left. Also, career and education helped the participants look to the future with optimism. So there was something to look forward to, something to aim for, and something to uh, enable them to self-actualize. It maintained a sense, or they maintained a sense of coherent identity by identifying enduring elements and providing opportunity for fuller expression of those outside of the organization that they left. The second concept I'd like to talk to you briefly about is that of moratorium. So this is an Ericksonian idea, but I'm quoting it here from Gabriel Gray and Gorogakar, who researched managers who were made redundant in their 50s. Um, and these were jobs where they had a strong sense of identity associated with the job. So again, it was how, how did these managers cope with this break in the job that their identity had been so much attached to? So similarly to Haney and Shepard, they found that participants who used narrative coping seemed to fare better. So they again told a story that didn't have a full stop at the end of it. Those that, that weren't able to do that were very angry about being made redundant, about losing their job and their identity and who they were, and struggled to come to terms with it. So Erickson's psychosocial theory of ego identity relates to this idea of moratorium, um, this stage where um, young people, particularly adolescents, are not ready yet to settle on um, a very clear identity, and they might experiment with different ones. They're not ready yet to commit to a specific identity. And actually, society, culture accepts that and allows that sort of experimentation to happen. Allowances are made for individuals to go through this period of self-discovery. It's a sort of period of license to experiment and explore identities. And this, what's happening here is that the individual self is developing, which of course is rooted in the socialization process, friends, family, wider community. So as I said, facilitated first by parents and family, and then through wider associations, such as religions or a religion, a community, a job, etc. This is all part of this getting to know yourself period during adolescence and young adulthood. So during moratorium, a person makes sense of these different elements of identity and ultimately, if it's done successfully, integrates them into a stable sense 
of self. I argue that for Jehovah's Witnesses, as children, they tend to, the socialization process is very much controlled not just by the parents but by the organization so there's a real emphasis on family worship family bible studies meetings preaching even the social life is very much revolving around being a jehovah's witness so all the friends will be jehovah's witnesses in the main there's also a real sense of restricted identities the idea of becoming an entertainer or an academic or a woman becoming a leader even is just not something that's open to Jehovah's Witness children. As they approach adulthood, young Jehovah's Witnesses are expected to dedicate their life to Jehovah and get baptised. Um, it's quite interesting looking at the uh, literature on this there are some communities even quite close-knit or closely coupled communities who do allow a certain amount of freedom for youths to leave and experiment a little bit with the expectation that they'll come back after they've sort of got that out of their system jehovah's witnesses do not encourage that at all and so upon leaving even adults might feel the need to do some of that self-discovery work, even in their 30s and 40s and later. So that might include some experimentation with certain aspects of themselves that they've never really been able to reconcile before. For my participants, education and career was one of the mechanisms that they used to help create these new identities. And the final concept I want to just briefly touch on is this idea of a bricolage. Again, it's this same research as the previous one. Um, but here this is referring to uh, Buzanel's work on resilience, where there, it, the discussion is around how um, bricolage, this concept of being able to um, take bits and pieces from your environment and make something of it can be applied to resilience and identity. It comes from this tradition. Apparently, French peasants would um, find little bits and bobs of things on the floor and they'd cobble them together. They'd make do and mend. I guess it's in a lot of our histories is that, you know, if you don't have much money, you have to make do with the best you can. And so these craftsmen and women would be able to cobble together these things and make useful things out of them. So Buzinel, um, and then referred to by the research by Gabriel Gray and Garakagar, use this concept around identity. Individuals can piece together elements of selfhood from what they already have they are able to adapt reshape merge old and newly available concepts for example the elder giving talks becomes a stand-up comedian all because of this identity of entertainer so bricolage may offer a method to 
in inverted commas, tinker with bits and pieces of identities and selfhoods and piece something together. Career and education provided the space to do that identity work in my participants. This included self-discovery of the sorts of person that they were and social scaffolding. In other words, finding new communities that they could move to after they left. So that's pretty much it with my research. I hope you found that interesting. There's loads more questions, of course. Um, is education and career uniquely helpful in this process? Um, of course, I chose that because it had been helpful to me. But what other activities, strategies might other ex-members use? For example, hobbies, other religious communities, secular societies, charity work, sport, politics. What else do people use? Uh, the references that I've used today are here. I'm happy to provide a uh, fact sheet for that. Um, and thank you for listening. <laughs>